This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Um, I'm Panel Beater and I'm far from alone in the studio. I'm joined by Dr Sharma, Lady Gaga and Perry Pardum. A very good morning to you, Perry Pardum. Good morning. How are you, Panabita? Really good. Stressed, but good. It's been... It's that <laughs> time de- of year, isn't I'm it? I'm dealing with students and yeah. exams and essays and things like that, and I'm just accumulating their stress, <laughs> amongst other things. How are you, more point? Because we, we missed you last week, well, last month. Last time? Yeah, that's right. I had a terrible cold, and instantly then I jetted off to the biggest um, international perinatal mental health conference in the world in Bangalore in India so when I was just amazing for Mm. so many reasons scientific and otherwise and I'm very excited about it there was lots of news to bring to you so when I get a chance I will enlighten everybody there was something on your mind though wasn't there something newsy oh there was so much yeah, um, I know. Yeah, it's been so, quite... so I would say that the biggest news from my perspective is that um, we're rethinking our understanding of postpartum depression, I think. And uh, science is advancing in our understanding of the hormonal and other sort of autoimmune and neurological influences in postpartum depression. So I will leave that as a taster and then we will talk about it later on in the oh, show. Brilliant, brilliant. Great stuff. And Lady Gaga, if memory serves, we haven't seen you since May. A few months, yeah. I usually go go to ground over winter. Go to hibernate like a bear. <laughs> That's not such a bad strategy, I <laughs> no, reckon. I'm smart. How are you? <laughs> good, good. Morning. Good. Welcome back. What have you got for us later on the show? So I'm going to be discussing, I guess, some of the implications um, for queer people on the release of the Religious Freedoms Report, or the leak, rather, not the real release, um, and also discussions around conversion therapy that yeah, are happening right. within the community. Yeah. Yeah, in the context um, of many things, not least of which was that coming to the fore during the Wentworth by-election, That's right. of which we just saw something enormous last night. Yeah, uh, Independent was elected. There yes. you go. <laughs> Good on you. Uh, a doctor, no less, Dr Karen Phelps, medical doctor. Um, and and also a woman who thinks that LGBTI rights are quite important. I love her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's... Um, Got a lot of. We, we should perhaps um, uh, try and seek her out maybe at some point. Oh, I'd like that. I'll get on. I'll make a note. <laughs> and Dr. Sharma, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, here we are. I've had two instant coffees. I'm ready to go. You know, <laughs> You're probably right. to slow down today. <laughs> Is that explaining the shakes? Yeah. Literally. Is that yeah. why you said you didn't want another one? That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> you might become incoherent. I find that three is my max these days. Although when I was a student, I could go six or seven instant coffees. Six or seven? Six or seven. Yeah, because, you know, just <laughs> what Panel Vita was talking about before, that kind of the race to the finish line yeah. at the end of every semester, yeah, you yeah. need something additional to help you through yeah. it. For me, it was instant coffee. But the bitter taste still reminds me of that sick feeling before exams. Anyway, let, let's... <laughs> I did my tour of duty in hospitality, you know, when you're trying to earn the pennies back in the day. And um, while I was on shift, didn't affect me at all. As soon as I shift, you know, just leave wired with that caffeine. Enough of that. We've got a jam-packed show. I'm um, uh, shortly going to... Uh, oh, sorry. Dr Sharma, what were you... I have got, got a very special guest uh, to discuss some of the happenings regarding Nauru and the yeah. humans who are being detained there. I've got a very special guest, uh, uh, activist and neurosurgical trainee, Dr Ruth Mitchell. Uh, she's going to drop some truth bombs. Three triple R. Welcome back to Radiotherapy on Triple R. You're with Dr Sharma, Lady Gaga, Perry Pardon, myself, Panel Beater, and we're joined in the studio by our first special guest of the morning, Dr Catherine, and I've been getting it wrong all morning, Dr Catherine Crook. 
crook. crook. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. It was going to happen, wasn't it? It was going to happen. It was going to happen. happen. The panic in your eyes before you said it. (laughs) Rolling in my eye sockets, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, Good on me. Um, Welcome to Triple R. It's lovely to be here. (laughs) Is it your first time? Yes, it's very exciting. This is beautiful. I love it when people get here for the first time and we get to we get to share that with them. Um, now, I should, before we go on, um, mention that we had... You've obviously got a bit of a fan club. Oh, yeah. good. <laughs> so I was able to put some details up on Radio Therapy's Facebook page promoting this show. Oh. And one kind commenter, in capital letters, said how much she was looking forward to it and described you, in capital letters... Awesome. Oh, nice. Thank you. <laughs> fan clubs are good to have, huh? Very good. I didn't know I had a fan club. <laughs> now, you're um, a medical pioneer, pr- uh, medical practitioner. You're also Order of Australia. Yes. That was very exciting. When did that happen? 2015. And you don't know anything about it until it happens. Just a phone call? No, you get a letter with the lovely gold crest on the letter. From you go, the, I wonder what this is. From yes, the, from the Governor General. From the GG. Not a parking fine, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good letter to open. Um, but you're here today to talk to us about your work with a foundation that you set up called the Hush Foundation. Why don't you kick us off by just giving us some context for its establishment and what it is? Well, I started work in 1994 at the Royal Children's Hospital and the work I was doing turned out to be quite difficult. I had five young children at home and I was asked to do the bone marrow tests and lumbar punctures on children with leukaemia and other life-threatening illnesses. And I get into this situation where I'm thinking this is highly stressful, not only for me but for the patients and for the families. And I said to the families, how could we make this a little bit easier for you? And one of the very first things they said was, what about some music? So I grabbed some classical CDs from home and I brought them in and sometimes they'd work and sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes it would build up into some intense crescendo and you'd think, I wish I could turn that off. So I I know some really amazing musicians, Paul Grabowski amongst them. And I talked to Paul about it and he said... um, we could actually compose for this situation and have the music that's absolutely right for what you need. So it started us on this journey and we've now done 18 albums of beautiful, newly composed Australian music. Over what period of time is this? From About the cons- year 2000, oh, we sorry, got it up and going. 2000, so yeah. yeah. So amazing musicians like Joe Kindamo and um, Tony Gould and the Australian Chamber Orchestra Collective have just worked with us in the last 12 months. We'll talk a little bit more about all of that work, but I'm curious about where the name itself, Hush, I I wonder, given it's the musical nature and the creative arts involvement, what's Hush? Well, we sat down and brainstormed with one of these brilliant marketing-type people, a fellow called Dale Renner, and Dale, I put it all in front of him, explained the concept, and he said, I think Hush, it says what it does. So we're aiming to get people to feel calm and relaxed, potentially in a really stressful situation, and it, it works. Uh, Perry Potter. It, um, just so many questions have arisen in my mind listening to what you got, you've been saying. Um, so can you just tell me, if it works, what do you notice about the child in front of you and about the family? How can you sort of see that it's working? 
I'll give you an example of, say, a particular child walking through the procedures. So they've come to have a bone marrow and a lumbar puncture and they might be fairly, you know, stressed about that because it's a somewhat painful, tricky thing. They come into the waiting room and we've got a music therapist there playing music and engaging with everybody. So for starters, they're a little bit more calm. Then they walk into the operating theatre and we've got this beautiful background music which has been specifically designed not to raise your anxiety levels or stress you out, but to give you a feeling of optimism. One of the other effects, though, is this is really helping the parents. Mm. So the kids can be somewhat under control, but if the parents are really tense, the kids quite quickly can build off that and the whole thing can become really chaotic. Yeah, I can just imagine. So, so we, we bring the family in into a calm environment. And the third thing that's happened is it's really amazing for the staff. And this was not something we thought about in the beginning. And in fact, it's almost become a bigger mission for me. So start at the other end, start by getting the staff and the people who are doing the difficult work into a mindset where they're feeling cared for and looked after and feeling calm. And then they can help everybody else down the chain. It's Does that make sense? No, it's fabulous. It's a wonderful reconceptualisation of how to provide best quality care. Actually. Yeah. yeah, and I think we need to rethink some of it. Mm. We're so good now at the technical and the medical and the pharmaceutical things, but we can ease, and we've got all these amazing computers helping us, mm. but we can be disconnected then. It's also really beautiful that you mentioned you got the idea by asking patients what would help you yeah. feel better or calmer, and it's actually them who provided the suggestion. Yep, and got me into a lot of trouble at the time. <laughs> it was, was not in the day when you asked the patients and families for their input. What would be a it's typical incredible. response? What was the pushback? Um, you're stirring up the families and making them complain. That was the main right. one. Yeah. And in fact, none of the families were complaining. They are so grateful for the care that they get. And repeatedly they'd say, this is quite amazing and we are so grateful. But if you were to, you know, bring some music in, if you were to maybe stagger the admission times mm. into operating theatres so we don't have to sit for hours yeah. waiting. So they had some really sensible suggestions. Yep. Can I just go back to that question of um, setting the mood? I don't know if that was the word you used, but it was kind of the way I was processing it for myself, you know, the calmness you were talking about. A, a conversation, whenever I get a chance to have a conversation with a, a music therapist or something of that nature, my go-to question is, do you find most people want music to reinforce how they're feeling or do they want music to change how they're feeling? That's an interesting one. And for us, I think we're trying to change how they're feeling to take them into the headspace where they're feeling, this is okay, you know, I can take it a step at a time and feel moderately optimistic despite the circumstances. Can I ask, um, I mean, the Royal Children's Hospital are very lucky to have that, that this program running, but can I ask about whether or not you've been able to um, roll it out in other settings? Because it feels really broadly applicable. Everyone's pretty stressed when they go to hospital, yep. and particularly for a cancer procedure. So we've gone into all the children's hospitals around the country, and that was quite an easy thing because they started contacting us and saying, 
can we share this? And we were going, we would love you to. So, yes, we provided the music into all the children's hospitals, but now into aged care and palliative care and adult settings. What we're struggling with a bit is the technology moving from CDs, which we could post to you, um, and now we have to work out how we're going to stream that into hospitals. That's our dream, really, that you could press an icon on the computer in the morning and go, this music is going to help everybody all day and it's all there on a playlist it occurs to me listening to you talk like that and and, you know about that resistance you initially experienced and now where you've got to with the acceptance and enthusiasm for it music's been known to have an effect on us for a long time right if only because of advertising right jingles and so on and we walk into a supermarket and there's ambient music going on where the music is directly correlated to the mood Mm. that they want to set for the workers as much as for the people so it kind of goes of course we should do it in hospitals or clinics or, or something like that yeah but it's it's like been step two hasn't it it has been and i was surprised that it was so hard but actually now it's become a bit of a calling card to talk about other things and about changing the culture in healthcare, even in a bigger way. So how we all treat each other on a daily basis. Um, you're on uh, Radio... Th- <laughs> radio. <laughs> radio I'm, I'm losing all my yes. words this morning. They're on the radio. You're on the radio. You're on the radio, okay? With the doctor, that? Catherine. <laughs> what was it again? <laughs> now, see, I'm going to read it this time. I've only had one coffee and I'm doing better all <laughs> <laughs> With Dr. Sharma, Lady Gaga, Perry Pardon, Panel Beater, and our special guest is Dr. Catherine Crock. From the Hush yeah. Foundation. <laughs> See what I did there? Got it right. Perry Pardo, you're about to say something. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I think um, working in a general hospital setting um, for adults, I'm always, I, I'm always shocked that I, you know I have to shout over um, the noise of someone having a, a procedure in the next bed and someone being assessed by the occupational therapist in the bed across the way um, to talk to people about very sensitive personal things. As mm. I'm a psychiatrist, mm. like you know. Have you had thoughts about wanting to die? Which is something I ask people on a, you know, multiple times daily basis. And I feel as though um, the idea that people come into a hospital where they're very psychologically vulnerable and then are sort of um, exposed to this kind of continuous racket and um, cacophony is actually quite psychologically destabilising. And I really think that yeah. your your project, I think, really highlights that, um, that it's really important that ambient um, experiences of all modalities are really crucial in trying to reduce people's stress at this point. Well, I think what I learnt was when you bring a creative person like a composer into that space, they just go, oh, my goodness, you are working and providing care in an environment that is a cacophony of noise and the music needs to sit in a really special place, not to make that worse. So it's quite an intellectual exercise for them and a big challenge to do the right sort of music. So do you stream it um, into hospitals where people have the opportunity of listening to it through headphones perhaps so that that one might also reduce the kind of the interference from I other I think sources? we could be doing that, yes. Yeah. At the Royal Children's it's on the television sets to every bedside and I think they can you know, put earphones in for that. I know I ask my dentist, are they OK if I put headphones in? <laughs> Yeah, because it just distracts me. Mm. I'm, I've just got, I'm just one of those people, just really not fan of dentists. But yeah, that's part of what you need is a distraction when you're in a difficult place. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned a moment ago about these CDs that you've been producing. You're up to the 18th one, and I'm holding one in my hands now. Tell me about that project. The one we've just recently launched is called Collective Wisdom, and what we did was we sent 12 composers into adolescent 
um, mental health and chronic illness units around the whole country, so lots of different hospitals. And those um, composers brainstormed with the adolescents and they came up with this incredible music which is played by the Australian Chamber Orchestra Collective. And it's absolutely stunning. We launched it with a um, beautiful concert in Melbourne at the Melbourne Recital Centre and also up in Sydney. And the music is just gorgeous. Great Christmas present. Well, yeah, there we go. So we are coming to the end of our time. So come on, let's do the plugs. How can people get it? Where can they find it? And where can they find more information information about the Hush Foundation? The best thing is our website, hush.org.au. That's got everything. It'll tell you about where to get the CDs. It'll tell you you can come to our next event, which is the Gathering of Kindness on World Kindness Day, November the 13th where we'll talk about how we can treat each other with kindness and respect and get better out of our health system. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to Radiotherapy. I'm Dr Vyom Sharma here in the studio with Panel Beda, Perry Parton, Lady Gaga and our special guest today, Ruth Mitchell. Um, I wanted to speak to you a little bit uh, uh, today about the recent developments uh, that have been happening in Nauru relating to our asylum seekers being detained there at the behest of the Australian government. To give you a brief uh, uh, summary of what's been happening in the last few weeks, Medicines on Frontier has been kicked out, the leading doctors representing Australian contractors have been arrested and deported, and 6,000 doctors and medical students have signed an open letter to Scott Morrison, uh, all within just a matter of weeks. And to talk to you uh, about all this today and more is uh, Dr Ruth Mitchell, a name we should all get used to hearing more off. Um, I have to be honest, there's so much to mention about her contributions. I don't even have time to go into her entire bio. Um, She's a true leader in medicine. She's completing her specialty training in neurosurgery, but she has a a strong uh, history and passion for activism. Uh, In medical school, she was the head of the Health and Human Rights Group in Flinders University. She led groups of medical students to Baxter Detention Centre to visit asylum seekers, winning an alumni prize for the work. But clearly she was interested in addressing the root causes for these humanitarian displacements, and to this end she was involved in MAPW, Medical Association for Prevention of War, as a medical student. And so in 2007, as part of this association, she she did something incredible. She was involved in beginning this campaign called ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And last year, this campaign, ICANN won the Nobel Prize. Ruth Mitchell is the president of ICANN in Melbourne, Australia, and she's clearly been propelled to to this position by her deep commitments to to stop a lot of the suffering that we're seeing. So thank you so much for joining us, Ruth. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you, Vyom. Thank you, yeah. So I wanted to just touch on a couple of those things. Uh, Firstly, you've had just first-hand experience, of course, visiting people in detention centres. Tell us from experiences of meeting them, like, what's it like for them to, and to observe them in your position as a, as a medico? So as a medical student, or as you mentioned, we, um, we started taking trips up to Baxter Detention Centre at a time when the Australian approach to um, uh, immigration uh, coming from these refugee kind of groups was to put them in detention centres, um, but, but onshore. Um, and in out-of-the-way places like, like Baxter, so about a four-hour drive from Adelaide. Um, but we made the trip. We take about a dozen med students up there, and it was really life-changing to sit down and talk to people who are being detained indefinitely. And these were adults who were coming to Australia because they were desperately fleeing things and people and circumstances which were untenable and unlivable, um, with no other options really available to them. And being 
kept in, 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 in sort of suspended animation for sometimes up to five years, uh, not knowing what would happen to them, not knowing what their future would hold. I heard stories about um, people who, you know, men who would be in touch with their wife back in uh, another country and realise that their wife had realised it was, it was going to be time to take another husband because to keep their kids safe, that was necessary. And you see the sort of um, deprivation that comes about from from the Australian government's approach to keeping people indefinitely in detention, separated from their loved ones, from their context, from their from any future sense of community they might have, and so it's it's from that background of having spoken to those people that I I now find myself um, freshly um, outraged and enraged and um, activated to to speak out about what's happening on Nauru because. I think about how desperate this has been for adults in detention. Um, the impact is is got to be a hundredfold on on a little child developing in in that environment of no future and no present. That's right. It, it, it's. Uh it's 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 absolutely shocks me beyond belief, uh, and it's that word you mentioned earlier. It's the indefinite part. It's the lack of hope and constantly hanging on. And every day is this kind of new disappointment. Um, and as we're seeing now, uh, particularly in, in Nauru, and you know, it, it being kind of offshore, uh, the MSF is describing. Yes, there's all the the usual problems, of course, that you see in these populations of depression, anxiety, uh, post traumatic stress disorder, but we're all also seeing uh, increased amounts of, of self-harm and attempted suicide. We've had about 78 people considering or attempting suicide. Uh, these are people just kind of at, at wit's end. Absolutely. So when we think about those children who are on Nauru, and from what we understand there are 66 kids still on Nauru, um, every single one of them is at grave grave risk of, of harm. Um, this should be seen as a medical emergency, but not an unforeseen one, like a natural disaster. This is a medical emergency of our own making. This is the equivalent of intentionally lighting someone's home on fire. We are causing harm. And and as a, as a doctor, I, I actually cannot stand silent in, in the face of that. That is simply unacceptable. And what's been happening is, you know, every so often, um, you know, a, a child is transferred to Australia um, because the courts have overruled what the minister has said about they needing to be here. The reality is, I mean, if you've worked with sick people, you know they deteriorate quickly. And by the time you've gotten through the rigmarole of bureaucracy, it becomes obvious that someone who was sort of mildly sick with impending sepsis mid last week might now have multi-organ failure mm. and need to be you know, admitted to an intensive care unit and might not survive. So we look at that sort of sequence of events I think what I'm most amazed by is that what I've seen over the last uh, sort of week to two weeks is that in a way that I haven't seen in my time in medicine in Australia, groups of doctors who might not have seen themselves as being, you know, freedom fighters or activists, you know, they're not the sort of hippie <laughs> sort that I usually see at the protest rallies, which are my native land. Um, the, these you know, colleagues of mine who may come from across the political spectrum have found their voice and have found from within their the vows they've taken to do no harm um, and the commitment they have to stand up for patients, the ability to speak on on issues that they, they haven't spoken on before. So we've had almost 6,000 doctors write to the Prime Minister to say, we want the kids off Nauru. 
We want them now. We care about deaths on land and on sea. And what we're seeing is intolerable. And this is not going to continue in our name. It's, it's untenable. That's just beautifully said. And particularly the point you made about uh, people who are not traditionally seeing themselves as activists. We're seeing doctors from every specialty, uh, every uh, medical college has spoken out about this. But I know this personally, uh, friends, other medical friends who maybe vote differently to how I vote um, uh, are also kind of standing in unison on this issue. And we're seeing this in broader context as well. Backbenchers from the Liberal Party speaking up. Of course, we mentioned Karen Phelps earlier in Wentworth. One of her uh, two big platforms, apart from climate change, was uh, the treatment of, uh, of asylum seekers, particularly kind of offshore. And so I've, you're right, I've never seen the medical community be so activated and so in unison, um, being informed by that, that primary viewpoint we have of being doctors and looking people as, as patients. With that activist mindset, so the, um, the, the 6,000, was it? Uh, 6, signatures, yeah. yeah have, yes. Has gone to the Prime Minister. Yes. Um, and generally in, um, in news coverage, the, the go-to... Uh, the face that we associate with the policy is Dutton. Um, I'm listening to you speak about the profession and wondering if the Minister of Health's ever engaged in this. Um, in you know, is that where some of the lobbying is starting to be directed at all? Well, the good thing at the moment is that we've got um, pretty good coverage of pretty much every par every parliamentarian. So across the house, across um, across the country. Um, people who are concerned about this, doctors from within the electorates of ev pretty much every member of parliament have been, um, they've been hearing from their constituents and they've been hearing that this is not on. Um, and I think that, um, you know, politics in Australia is uncertain. Um, maybe so, uh, once again time to change our smoke alarms um, with the new <laughs> prime minister. We wait instructions. Um, but I think that we cannot let our, um, the future of these children be held hostage to those political processes. We can't let it be about who's in government or who's um, who's running the show. We have to make this about a human rights issue. And that's the power of medical advocates, is the ability to frame things as they should be, as health issues, as human rights issues, not, not political games. Ruth, as you're talking, I'm very inspired. <clears throat> like I'm sure a lot of people are who are listening to you. Do you have any steps that somebody listening to you at home might be able to take in order to maybe try to affect the change that they think is necessary in this situation? Absolutely. So I think the most important thing that you can do is phone your MP. Um, you can phone them, you can email them, you can write them a letter. But in the next sort of 24 to 48 hours, you know, there's a lot of things moving and a lot of things on the agenda in Canberra. Make sure this is at the top of the list. Um, make sure that people know that uh, you know, that, that the person who represents you in Canberra knows that this is the most important thing that is happening right now for you. Give them a call. And in general, I would encourage people to call their parliamentarian whatever is on their mind. Um, sure. They work for us, and mm. we must remember that. Um, they need to be accountable to us. Um, and when there's an election coming, they have to know that we're watching what it is that they do on our behalf and on behalf of those who are most vulnerable, who we have to speak for. 
And especially on that point of contacting MPs, I mean, they are actually required to respond. So it's not this little uh, kind of protest thing that you think you're doing. This is actually something that, that requires them to respond. To touch on something you mentioned earlier, uh, like you mentioned in medicine, common sense says you don't really wait for things to kind of get worse and yet this is just that familiar thread in medicine where uh, things need to be pushed until crisis point, until things change. And in fact, uh, in that letter was uh, that 6,000, 5% of all uh, medicos in this country signed was written by uh, Dr Sarah Townsend, a, a GP. And she made a really interesting point uh, saying that yeah, if you, even some of the, the worst criminal offenders in this country, they are afforded medical care, and yet uh, if... Uh, if, if asylum seekers in Nauru are having these issues, they have to rely on a legal process to be able to be extracted from Nauru uh, to get that appropriate care, which we know does not exist specifically for psychological care. Uh, there's uh, the MSF president was stating how there's one psychiatrist present in Nauru who does not speak English. There's a psychology nurse uh, present. A lot of the time for attempted suicides, uh, people are being taken to police stations, uh, not to hospitals. So the state of care is bad. Uh, it, it really is quite shocking. Um, and one of the, the flow-on effects of removing Medic Medicine Sans Frontieres has been a lot of the time MSF was providing these patients with files that they could use as part of the legal process to be able to get treatment uh, off that island, which they, of course, now cannot do with MSF uh, gone. So it should never have been something that should be uh, fought on a legal level. I, I completely agree with you. We need to look at it from a medical perspective, but even more basic than that, just this humanitarian perspective where they are in many ways being treated worse uh, than, than, than criminals. Absolutely, and I think that really goes to one of the basic tenets, which is that prevention is better than cure. Some of these um, these poor children on Nauru have been damaged irreversibly. Some of them could still benefit from medical care. But what we must do is ensure that every single one of them and their families are taken off Nauru as soon as possible, immediately, and that this situation does not replicate itself. There cannot in the future be a time when the Australian population stands and watches while this is done in our name. This can never happen again. This is, uh, this is beyond reproach. And prevention is, is better than cure to ensure the well-being uh, of children who, who, are, who are being uh, tortured at our, at our behest. What's your, so we're pointing to um, uh, individually and collectively lobbying our representatives and so on. Um, what is the? How would you characterise the resistance? I think that what is the greatest resistance is inertia. It's it's just that people are not used to engaging and caring. It's not that people actively wish to harm other human beings. It's that they have been sold a lie that this is nothing to do with them mm. and that the plight of refugees isn't their plight there is no them there is only us we are all in this on this planet together and and i think that getting to that kind of level of understanding that this could be me this could be my family is what is needed to overcome that sense of um, apathy and inertia mm. um, you know on the way here I think I managed to talk my uber driver around to thinking this was his business um, <laughs> and I think we just have to do that one at a time as we go you've got a two-minute elevator pitch on uh, on this topic I imagine oh any any number of minutes on a number <laughs> of topics <laughs> So you reckon, you reckon it's uh, electoral politics that got us into the mess and it might be electoral politics that gets us out? 
Um, I think it might be, but I don't like the idea of trusting politicians for solutions. Um, we, the people, need to take this into our hands. And that means that whoever your politician is, at any level of government, they need to know how you feel about this and how strongly you feel about this. Let's not leave it in, in, to the gods. Let's, let's take responsibility. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Welcome back to Radiotherapy on Triple R. You're with uh, Dr Sharma, Perry Pardum, Lady Gaga, panel beater, and um, we've got something from Lady Gaga. Is that right? Well, I, I believe so. <laughs> Why is that a question? <laughs> well, <laughs> or a, a, statement? A, a rhetorical one. That's right. So um, I'm planning, I guess, to bring the discussion about the Religious Freedoms uh, Review that was leaked uh, a few weeks ago now um, to the panel just for discussion um, and also link in the um, conversion therapy report that was um, released also around the same time. And, you know, it's ironic, isn't it? But um, for anyone who hasn't been made aware of what's going on. I don't know that there are many people in Australia that, that um, don't, but uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the Religious Freedoms Review was leaked um, and Scott Morrison uh, was actually... He's, he's done a bit of a 180 now, but his initial uh, reaction to the leak of this report was, this is an exciting law. Um, and since since then, four days ago, um, Minus 18, uh, which is a local LGBTIQ youth organisation, um, put up a campaign um, calling for signatures to... Um, obviously change the the current laws that allow for uh, religious organizations including schools to uh, expel so for schools it, to expel students that um, do identify as um, gay lesbian queer or bisexual um, and also their teachers um, so minus 18 um, of course thought this was absolutely am I allowed to swear on air I'm not a bullshit <laughs> Practically encouraged. Oh, great. I didn't know that. I'll know that for next time. Um, but in four days, they got um, 35,000, at last count, 35,686 signatures um, in support of changing the law to um, not allow for discrimination against queer people. And so um, that's just, you know, a people who, who could have access to computers and, and wanted to voice their opinion on this. Um, since then... Scott Morrison has um, done a bit of a 180 and um, said that this is something that they won't tolerate um, as as a as a government and um, was recommending that the laws that are currently that currently do allow um, for states to um, discriminate against um, their students and teachers in schools um, to be changed. So Queensland and Tasmania are the only states that. Um, do not have the where people um, within schools do not have the um, ability to discriminate against their students and teachers. Um, so they're leading the way um, on this, which I think is wonderful. Um, but I guess the the conversation has many wide ranging implications. So again, this is not even a year since um, the well the passing of um, the or the I guess vote results um, for the marriage equality um, survey or the marriage law postal survey were um, released on November 16 of last year and it's not even a year and we're back here mm. um, again talking about the the rights of LGBTIQ people just to go about their their lives basically and access public services um, that are paid for by government money a lot of the time like private private institutions um, are supported by by state and federal government and um, by having 
I guess, the ability to discriminate against members of the public who contribute that money from their taxes um, is absolutely shocking to me personally. Um, I'm really glad that we have uh, Ruth in the studio because I know that Ruth is um, also a very passionate um, advocate of, of LGBTQ rights. And so I think the fact that we're having this debate um, it just brings up a lot of things for people who identify as LGBTIQ. Um, again, we're talking about basic human rights. You know, Ruth um, mentioned that just now, that this is not something that people are choosing um, for themselves. This is not something that... Um, this is very... It, it's who people are in, in their base. And by, by being able to discriminate against people's identity it it just has absolutely catastrophic impacts on people's mental health their physical health who they are who they see themselves as and how they relate to people in the world so um i've been on before and talked about um i guess the work that um i do with switchboard victoria which is an lgbtiq um, organization mainly um not mainly but working um in providing a free phone counselling service to people who identify as LGBTIQ and just something that I can say immediately is that we've seen the rates of calls increase, we've had to put on additional volunteers, um, had to send out a whole heap of correspondence to our volunteers to make sure that everyone is okay because it, this is affecting people in wide and varied ways. Um, you know, people who are already at risk of um, worse mental health issues or not worse mental health issues but are at risk of of mental health issues it is i i get sorry i get a little bit impassioned about this topic because it's just it's just not fair at the end of the day it's not fair to just assume that you can discriminate against someone because of who they are and i just i'd hate to hear that people who are already struggling to come to, to terms with their sexuality, young people in, in schools are just going to ignore that part of themselves, um, a very vital and vibrant and important part of themselves because they think that their identity is up for public discussion. Lady Gaga, let's um, come to the, some of the specifics of the policy in, or the proposed policy or at least the debate in a minute. But first of all, just take advantage of your proximity to the community and your work with the community to hear about what is going on for them. Um, you referenced the um, plebiscite of last year. Mm. Um, could you highlight for us some similarities and differences to the experience that people are having? Uh, I think... Um the current discussion is um, seems to be more focused on young people. Um, the fact that the uh, discrimination laws or the religious freedoms, as um, Dr. Sharma put it before in inverted commas, air quotes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> freedom. Um, it, the, the fact is that it seems to be quite centred on on young people in schools as religious organisations. Um, but however, it, it's not the only. Um, group of people that are affected by this you know religious organizations also operate housing um facilities and um family violence um facilities and people who <laughs> are affected by those are not just straight and um cisgendered you know um so the current focus seems to be a lot on um, on young people and um, whether or not they will be expelled from their current school for being gay or uh, not even for being gay but 
but for being out, I guess, and talking about um, their sexuality and embracing that that part of themselves at a young age. So um, a lot of the discussion has been around rainbow families and um, and queer young people. So in that sense, even if um, Scott Morrison was our prime minister was was throwing up a um, you know a thought bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a cynical political exercise and he had no intention necessarily of mm. following through with mm. it. Um, just by virtue of raising it in the way he did, by um, by formalising it in the context of school funding in general... That's right. ..and also he's been in the press under some... I don't know, depending on your perspective on this, some heat for explaining his religious re- mm. religiosity. Mm. And uh, his aversion to sending his children to, um, to state schools. That's right. So there's... there's Issues within issues here, and of course, then this is all situated within the Wentworth by-election. Mm. So, um, it may very well have just been a cynical exercise, just to throw it out there and see what happens. And as you said, mm. he started to roll back a little bit. His, 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 com- disc- his comments have implications, and you know, very real, damaging. Um, implications mm. to your people's sense of self and identity and who they are and their value. Well, exactly. So even if it's cynical, that's right. It's got yeah. consequences. It's exactly. not as if the, it takes the policy to be enacted for the consequences to occur. The consequences are experienced policy or no. Exactly. He's in a huge position of power. He's a prime minister of our country. You know what people will listen to what he has to say, and I'm not saying that that doesn't mean he can express his views. Um, but he just needs to really be cognizant of the impact of what he says, um, and and that goes for many people in power. Is there a distinction from what you can discern from the way he's talking about it that is different? So we've spoken about the effect on the community. Mm. Um, is there a, is there something you're seeing as distinct in the way that he's talking about it um, in the context of religion that's different from the plebiscite? The, because clearly there is a public policy legitimate debate whether the state should fund private anything, Mm, in mm. this case schools, Mm. and if the state, through taxation, does choose to fund something, then to what extent can the state put regulations, laws, obligations? Personally, I don't believe that they can. Um, The UK is quite a good example of this. So they have, um, again, in their earmarks, the um, either... Uh, faith or funds and so if um, the religious organization is choosing to um, receive funds from either the state or um, federal government then they are on they're not able to discriminate against people um, by any means so Hmm. I would think that that could be something that we could follow within within Australia um, if we're looking to accept if we as a people are willing to accept that as something that the religious organisations will accept funding. I I personally won't stand for the fact that they can discriminate against um, people within their own community because at the end of the day, as you said, Ruth, um, we are... People have been sold that that, um, belief that this is not something that concerns them if they identify outside of the LGBTIQ community, but it it, it is. You know, we're we're all people. I don't understand how... um, the sense of social justice can um, just fall by the wayside when it's something that's not affecting you. Hey, Lady Gaga, thanks for talking us through that. It's We're lucky to have somebody um, who's working with the community as closely as you are and who can keep us alert to everything that's going on. Really appreciate you coming in today to talk to us about that. Um, 
I'm sure this won't be the last we talk about it either. Oh, no. <laughs> if you no. keep letting me in, this will be what I talk about. Oh, we'll let you in for sure. No <laughs> question there. Um, and uh, just as with um, the asylum seekers issue, just mm. with this issue that we've just been discussing, and I suspect also with climate change and an election just around the corner, mm. um, around the corner, sometime in the next six months, um, we've got a lot to talk about. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Perry Pardum, what do you got for us? So, while everybody else was doing inspiring things in Australia, I was off in Bangalore in India. So, the International Marseille Conference on Perinatal Mental Health was conducted there in the end of September. And that's the big international conference every year. And I go along and sometimes I'm inspired and sometimes I'm not. But this year I was really inspired. So, for the first... For starters, it was held in Bangalore, which is the first time it's been held in a developing country really ever. It's always been in very wealthy countries and um, that has had an influence on the kinds of things that we talk about in the conference. Um, But this time it was held in what's called the uh, National Institute of um, Mental Health and Neuroscience Research. It's a very big institute which also has um, a hospital in it for mental health and, and, and neurological disorders. And so part of what I got to do was actually have a look around there and meet some of the people and some of um, who were patients there and also doctors there and see what differences there are between the way that they conduct psychiatry in India to the way that we conduct psychiatry here in Australia. And it was profoundly different. So for a start, people are only ever admitted to this hospital if they have a family member who comes in with them. And that, um, I think, really uh, demonstrates a real difference between the understanding of how people live in the society in India compared with in Australia where we're quite an atomised and individualistic culture but in India it's very different and so um, people come in with a family member they remain um, uh, and that family member remains throughout the duration of their stay uh, and they are also um, con- consulted when there are changes in medication or decisions that are made about what to do from this point onwards. And so I found that really surprising and actually a very positive and different way of thinking about how to help people. Um, the other thing that um, is really different is that yoga is considered to be an integral part of care Um, and that's been driven by the Indian government in particular because they want to do a lot of investigation into the health benefits of yoga and part of that is implementing it in the mental health sphere and so um, yoga is practiced every day um, for inpatients and outpatients and they're studying its effects and in particular subgroups too. So in um, the children with attention deficit disorder or autism spectrum disorder in the perinatal context which I thought was really interesting Uh, but also for people with major mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And so I found that absolutely fascinating because, of course, incorporating the physical health of people's um, care into um, our understanding of their holistic self is something that we've been traditionally not terribly good at in psychiatry and the risks and issues for people's physical health in psychiatry are, are really significant. A lot of people have problems with obesity and heart disease and smoking and substance use disorders. Um, And I think that we could really learn a lot from that perspective. But if I can take four minutes to talk a bit about the science that they talked about, and so, sorry, just to continue on that point for just a moment, there was a lot of focus also about the rights of women in uh, developing countries and how that impacts on their mental health, which maybe I'll take time to talk about at some point down the track. 
Uh, I, would, I do want to just very briefly focus on one of the scientific advances which I thought was highlighted in this particular conference, and that was about the treatment and understanding of postpartum depression. So I think that um, in the past, certainly in my experience, the understanding of postpartum depression has been primarily as a sort of a, a psychosocial condition. Um, we think that it's the transition to motherhood which has a big impact on people's sense of who they are as a person and in our society, which as I said, sort of is a bit atomised and individualistic, sometimes the, lack, the loss of paid employment and the lack of value of unpaid parenting care in our society has meant that people feel marginalised and it, it becomes quite an isolating and lonely experience for women and people talk about the issues that relate to worsening depression so poverty and um, social disadvantage and domestic violence all of which I think are legitimately um, causes for worsening depression in some women but I think that what we have been somewhat less cognizant of are the profound biological and hormonal impacts that occur at the point of birth and which must have an effect on women. And to just very briefly talk from my feminist perspective, uh, I think that this arises from the idea that women are just slightly shorter, slightly less muscular men with breasts, and that no one actually looks at the experience of a woman in the context of her own biological and hormonal um, lived experience. So anyway... Um, there's very there's much less research done on women with depression and women um, women's experience of depression as different from the depression that is experienced at other points in your life and for other other people. Um, but what has become more and more pr pr uh, uh, evident in the time since um, uh, about sort of the, the last five or ten years or so is that people are really interested in the hormonal and the epigenetic context of postpartum depression. So one piece of research that has happened um, is uh, a bit of research that was done by a woman called Lauren Osborne, who's a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins in North America. She looked at different hormone levels in um, a cohort of women that they were studying through the course of their maternity care in hospital. And what she actually discovered in these women is that um, there was one particular hormone, a metabolite of progesterone um, called allopregnanolone, which if you measure it in the second trimester accurately predicts um, to about sort of 60% the risk of getting postpartum depression. So I'll just let that sink in. One more time. So allopregnanolone, which is a, um, a metabolite of progesterone. So progesterone and estrogen are the two big hormones that we think about when we think about um, women's hormonal milieu. And they both rise fairly stably during um, the second trimester of pregnancy and stay at a very high level during the third trimester. And then they crash to effectively nothing in um, the first 24 hours after birth. Um, and we should we should have other evidence that there is a hormonal component to postpartum depression. Um, we all know about the baby blues, which happens at about day three um, to about 75% of women. They sort of become tearful and um, without any real trigger. And it usually passes within 24 hours for most women. But for some women, that is the moment when their postpartum depression really gets a bit of momentum. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.